Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. Hey, good to see you at church today. Uh, thanks for coming out to the 11 o'clock. I was talking to Lauren uh, last Sunday, and we were talking about the grudge, you know, after message two. And uh, Lauren said, uh, it's good, but it's hard. She said, I feel um, like, uh, like I just went through like a counseling session or a session, and I walk out of counseling, and uh, I kind of feel like my counselor asked me some really challenging questions. And, you know, forgiveness is one of those things where uh, – it's challenging, it's hard, it's, it's difficult. And uh, the thing about it is you're not immediately, typically you're not immediately going to feel light and free and happy. Now, there is freedom that comes from forgiveness, but it's not always an immediate thing. And so in those moments, sometimes when you're, you're thinking about some of that hurt, and that pain and that baggage, it feels blah, it feels heavy. Today, we're talking about forgiving yourself or how to forgive yourself. Uh, let's go to Genesis chapter two. Uh, verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I would love to point out a truth for you to grasp onto. And that truth is this, that God's design, when God created you, when God created man, he wanted us to never know or never feel the burden of shame. We were not created to carry that on our shoulders. Well, however, Shame is one of the most prevalent emotions and feelings of the human experience. I'm going to continue the story in Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig, fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Oh, there's so much in here. There are so many people that are not in church today, and the reason they're not in church today is because they've messed up, we've all sinned, and they feel afraid of God, and so they're hiding from God. Did you know that people still hide from God today? We run, we avoid, we hide from God. And what is God's posture when Adam and Eve sinned? God came looking for them. He came towards them. So many of our friends and families, our loved ones, our neighbors, they well, I can't go to church because they're, they think that God is mad at them. They're hiding because they're afraid of God. Oh, Jesus, help us to have the right view of God. Our Heavenly Father is not one to, to be afraid of. Let's finish right here at verse 11. In verse 11, it says, And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these minutes and moments that we share. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit comes and give us eyes to see, speak to our hearts and our minds. Father, we pray for 15 and 87 that you will be with them in a mighty, powerful way tonight. And after they rips out the heart of the Buffalo Bills fans, Lord, you are mighty enough to heal them. We pray this in your mighty name. 
And everybody said, wow, that's the best amen I've heard all day. Um, my daughter Brecken is playing basketball for the first time. She has done uh, dance, done a lot of dance classes. She's done cheer. Uh, she has done theater camp, uh, but she is playing basketball for the first time this season. She decided to sign up and play basketball. And uh, now when it comes to basketball, I was all state. That's got nothing to do with the story. Just felt like I should share. <laughs> so Brecken's playing basketball, and she comes to me before the first game, and she says, Dad, if I score five baskets, what do I get? She's very extrinsically motivated. She wants that re reward. So I said, all right, if you score five baskets, I will give you a $100 shopping spree. And so her eyes light up, and she starts thinking about all the things she's going to buy at Shields with $100. And then she says, is that like five baskets in one game or five baskets through the course of the whole season? So she has her first game, and she doesn't, doesn't score, doesn't, doesn't actually take a shot. Second game comes, and it's nearing the end of the game. There's about two minutes left on the clock in the second half, and the ball comes to Brecken, so she catches it, and she squares up towards the basket to take a shot, and she shoots, and she misses, but she's fouled, so she gets two free throws. And she's thinking in her head, wait a second, two free throws, one, two baskets, to which I would have to explain to her later. That's not exactly how this works. Free throw counts as one point, not two. But I was like, I'll explain that to her later. So she steps up to the free throw line. She bends her knees, and with all of her strength, she shoots and comes up short. And after the first miss, she starts to get a little wobbly at the knees. And she listens to what the people are barking out from the bleachers. And she gets the ball for the second free throw, and she shoots the second free throw, and she misses again. And now her head sinks, and her eyes go to the ground. And her coach can tell that she's not doing well in this moment. So her coach subs her out, and then the remaining moments of the game, Brecken's walking over to her bench, and she doesn't even make it to her bench before she collapses into her coach's arms, and she starts bawling tears that the whole gym can hear. And in that moment, Brecken felt, I wasn't good enough, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed, I'm humiliated. And so many of us can relate to that feeling, that we did our best. We tried, but we come up short and we feel embarrassed. We feel humiliated. We feel like we're not good enough. We feel ashamed. And these are the three things that humanity does when we feel shame. These are the three effects of shame on our lives. We see them, that Adam and Eve do them in the garden. I saw the Brecken do them. And every single one of us has done this at some point. If there is an area of your life where you are weighed down by shame, these are the three things that we do. Number one, we hide. We hide. We avoid, and the last one is we try to handle things ourselves. We hide, we avoid, and we try to handle things ourselves. In the case of this example, uh, we were planning on staying for the next game to watch some of her friends play. They were playing in the same court right after her game. And after the game, all Brecken can think about is, I just, I just want to go. She's hanging on to my coat, her head's down, she's crying. Let's just go, Dad, let's just go. Let's just, let's just get out of here. I don't want to be here anymore because she's, she wants to hide. She wants to avoid her friends. And she starts to think and she starts to internalize and she's just like, I don't want to play basketball anymore. She's trying to handle it herself. And she's like, if I don't play anymore, then I never have to feel the rejection, humiliation, the embarrassment, the shame that I wasn't good enough. <clears throat> I'm not really talking about basketball anymore, am I? We hide, we avoid, and we try to handle things ourselves. Adam and Eve, they hid 
and the trees away from God. They avoided, they ran away from God, and they tried to handle it themselves by sewing fig leaves together because they wanted to cover up. We hide, we avoid, we try to handle things ourselves. Many of us have a, there's something in our life, there's a topic that when that topic comes up in conversation, it makes us uncomfortable. We don't really want to speak into that topic. And we actually feel like, well, I can't speak into that topic because I'm not really qualified. Because of my past experience, I'm disqualified, I'm discredited, I'm not the person you want to hear from. And so we may be in conversation and that we feel that little tension inside of us. Maybe it's our driving record. And we know about our speeding tickets. Or we know about our DUI from the past that we try to hide and we don't want people to know about. Or we know about the car wreck or maybe we were in a hit and run and there's these secrets in our driving record. We, we just don't want to talk about our driving record. Maybe it's mom and dad. Maybe you don't have a great relationship with your mom or you don't have a great relationship with your dad. And so when the topic of parents comes up, you kind of feel like, I can't really speak to that. I'm actually, that's kind of broken. And it's, I wish it was different, but I feel like, yeah, I don't have a great relationship with my mom and dad. Maybe it's love and romance and relationships. And when you think about love and romance and relationships, you think about some of the past mistakes you've made, some of the past failures of relationships, where maybe you hurt someone or you manipulated someone and you, you didn't mean to break their heart, but it happened and now you just feel this, well, I, I can't really speak. I've been through the breakups. I've been through the divorce and I can't speak to anything on relationships because we, we carry this shame on these different topics and there's this tension inside of us. And can I tell you that God's plan for your life is that you would walk free from this shame. It really is. The problem with shame is that it paralyzes and it has this grip on us. And um, as God's children, we can put our faith in Jesus and we can be, have assurance that we will spend eternity with him in heaven because we've accepted him as our Lord and Savior. And you know what the enemy tries to do? The enemy is going to try to heap shame upon you because if he can bring shame into your life in these different areas, then it will prevent you or stop you from walking into the plan and purpose that God has for you. And so this is the weapon that the enemy uses. And so he thinks you can't possibly join a small group. If you show up at that small group, they will see right through you. They won't really trust you. They won't really love you. You can't possibly show up at church because people will think about, well, I know you and I know what you used to do. So what do you think you're doing here at church? You can't possibly step into a leadership and try to lead a group. You can't do any of that because your past mistakes disqualify you. And we have these voices in our head and the shame that tries to keep us paralyzed. Can I be honest? Sometimes it's not even something that we did. It's something that happened around us. We can feel shame from something when we didn't make a mistake. But we have these, I should have known better. I should have seen it coming. I should have protected. And maybe someone close to us was hurt. And we run through all these, I should have, I should have, I should have, I should have seen it. I should have protected. I shouldn't. And we can have this intense shame from something. We didn't even do anything wrong. And there's this shame that can grip us. And ladies and gentlemen, God's plan for your life is that you would walk free from shame. And here's the problem. Shame is a horrible motivator. If shame worked as a motivating factor, then I would use it. You would walk into church and I would heap shame on you. And I would shame you for all the mistakes and wrong things that you've done. And I would shame you for the things that you're not doing that you should be doing. And you would walk out of here feeling like you just went 10 rounds with Mike Tyson, beat up. But shame doesn't work. That's why I'm not gonna use it. That's why pastors shouldn't use it as a motivating factor because it's the enemy's tool. It is not God's plan for us. It doesn't work. And technology has only increased the use of shame. Have you noticed that even kids will use shame on each other? A kid will see another kid pick up something off the ground and eat it and they will point and laugh. A kid will see another kid pick their booger and eat it 
And actually, that's maybe an okay time where you can... <laughs> might be the one instance that... I'll throw that one out. So kids will use shame on each other. And, we, and when we get older, we grow out of it, or maybe we don't. Maybe it just takes a different form. Maybe we just take a screenshot and we send it to someone and say, OMG, can you believe what they just did? And we push our distance away. It's another form of shame. We keep our distance from someone because I cannot believe they would do that and I would never do something like that. And so we use shame as a weapon. It's what we do as people. Now here's the truth about shame and God's plan and God's word. Um, and this is good news because I know some of you in here are thinking, I wish I wouldn't have came to church today. And some of you are thinking that what my secret is, what my shame is, is so bad, I don't think this message is really going to help me. Like, it might help someone else that has, like, a little version of shame, but my shame is so deep and so dark, I don't think he's going to speak to me. The good news is we're going to stand on the truth of God's word. We're going to look to what God's word says about shame, and no matter how deep or how heavy your shame feels, God's word works every time. You just have to have faith, and you have to apply it. We're going to look at three verses in the time that we have together of what God's word says about, not what the world says, not what your feelings say, what God's word says about shame. The first one is Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you accept Jesus for who he claimed to be, when you receive the free gift of salvation, when you receive the righteousness of God that Jesus offers us in a relationship with him, from that moment, you are to live a life according to the Bible scripture that is free from shame, which means that any shame that enters into your pathway is illegally entering into the trajectory of your life. Now, when we allow it to, we can still allow the voices of shame. We can still allow shame but that's where we have the choice. Are we going to renew our mind and live by the power of God's word? Or are we going to live by our feelings? You are to live a life that is shame-free. Now, <clears throat> have you ever had one of those days where you just want to put the covers over your head? You just feel like you can't get out of bed. You just want to watch another rerun of The Office because you don't have the energy, because you feel discredited, you feel disgraced, you feel emotionally exhausted and like, I just don't have the this can be the paralyzing, gripping effect of shame on our lives. And that is not God's best for you. God's plan is that we would walk free from shame. Now, I also want to be clear that if you have not accepted the performance of Jesus and you are standing on your own performance, then you actually have every reason to feel shame. And that's why shame is such a real thing. Because on our own, we have done shameful things. We have messed up. We have hurt people. And that's why the gospel is such good news. Because we are not saying, I'm standing on my own, on my own merit. I have no kind of, no, I'm accepting the performance of Jesus. I'm standing on his performance. If it's based off of my performance and my works and my past relationships and my past issues with anything, then yes, I am condemned and I have every reason to be ashamed and embarrassed and humiliated. But if I'm standing on the performance of Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why the gospel is so good. Now, some churches, some religious people don't like to preach it because it sounds too good to be true. In fact, for centuries in church history, you know what the church did? They said, you got to do more. So they said, you need to offer penance. You need to pay an indulgence. And if you do these works, then you can live free of condemnation. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not karma. 
what goes around comes around. That is also not the gospel. That's what the world says. But so many people, they begin a relationship with Jesus and they're influenced by the world and they think, well, I've had some bad relationships in the past, so I bet in any future relationships, there's gonna be more drama, there's gonna be more pain because that's just kind of the life that I've lived. That is not the life that God has for you. No condemnation means two things. Let's break down this verse and look at what this is, is truly saying. Paul is saying, no condemnation means you're not guilty and you have no fear of punishment. Number one, it means that you're not guilty. If you are accepting the performance of Jesus and you are in Christ Jesus, it means that you are quite literally not guilty. It doesn't mean that you didn't do it. It means that you are not guilty. It does not define you. It is not who you are. You're forgiven. You are not guilty. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. That's why he had to live a perfect life and go to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became our sin so that what we could become, the righteousness of God. When you are the righteousness of God, you are not guilty because you're not accepting your performance. You're accepting the performance of Jesus. You don't earn the performance of Jesus. You accept, receive the performance of Jesus. But perhaps what's more paralyzing from shame than not guilty is this, it's this fear of punishment. It's this fear that so many people have of impending doom. They think that things aren't really gonna work out well for me. Like, I'm just terrified that something bad is gonna happen in the future. And there's a fear of punishment, fear of impending doom that can squeeze the life out of us, take away hope. I wanna share with you 1 John 4.18 which says this, it says, such love has no fear because perfect love expels or casts out all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. Relationship with Jesus, experiencing the perfect love that Jesus offers in relationship with him in Christ Jesus, it removes that fear of impending doom. Years ago, they asked Christians, and they said, uh, I want you to finish this sentence. And the question was this, one thing I'm afraid God is going to do is, one thing I'm afraid God is gonna do is punish me for my past mistakes. One thing I'm afraid God is gonna do, you know what the most popular answer was? One thing I'm afraid God is gonna do is he's gonna kill one of my loved ones to get my attention. Like, what? What are we doing? We think this is the heart of our father that would take human life? Oh, Jesus, help us. We, we have fear and if you, whatever you finish that sentence with, one thing I'm afraid God is going to do is whatever the answer to that is, Take that to Jesus in prayer. And this is what Jesus is gonna do. He's gonna meet you in that moment of honesty and prayer. And he's going to say, I want you to experience more of my love because my perfect love will drown out all of that fear. This is what it looks like to be in relationship with Jesus. It's not one of this, I, I can handle this on my own. It's, a, it's, it's pure surrender. It's relationship with Jesus. You know, the gospel is preached when the works of man are laid down and the works of Jesus are lifted up. And that's what we're referring to here. Perfect love casts out all fear. Now, consequences are not punishment. There is a difference. If you put your hand on the stove and you burn your hand, that is not a punishment, that is a consequence, a natural consequence to prevent you from burning your hand off. 
I'm not going to talk extensively more about that, but there is a difference between consequences and punishment. We have no fear of future punishment. You don't need to think, well, I made past mistakes in relationships, so I don't deserve good things. I'm going to have more drama in my future relationships. That is not true. That is not what the good theology, that is not what the Bible teaches. Now, we live in a broken world where life is hard and bad things happen. Yes, I'm not saying no bad things are ever going to happen, but should we just sit around and expect bad things to happen? No, that's, that's false logic, and that's not what God has for us. Romans 8.1 is a, it's a supernatural invitation to a new perspective, a new vista, a new viewpoint of relationship with Jesus where there's no condemnation, we're not guilty, there's no fear, and um, we can be sure of our Father's posture by looking at a verse like Matthew 7.11. What is God's posture towards you? Well, Matthew 7.11 tells us, so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? This is the posture of our heavenly father towards us. He loves to be generous towards his children. His mercies are new every morning. He made a way through the cross for us to have a relationship with him. He wants us to not carry this burden of shame, but to walk in freedom as Jesus has designed and and paved the way for us. The second part is that verse. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? To be in Christ Jesus, it's, it's, to be in a, it's to be in a relationship with Jesus. It's to be in a relationship with Jesus. Uh, sometimes when uh, someone does something bad, people immediately create distance. They create distance. And uh, sometimes when we do something bad, we feel like God is a million miles away. And we actually hide Uh, which reinforces that feeling that God is a million miles away, like Adam and Eve hid. And we start to internalize these thoughts that shame tells us, like, you're unlovable. Look at you, you big fake, you did it again. You're unforgivable. And to be in Christ Jesus means that you're in a relationship with Jesus and he's right there with you. He's right there with you. When people push away, when fallen man pushes away and they point the finger in shame, God what did God do in the, in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against him? He came towards them, looking for them. Where are you? Where are you? To be in Christ Jesus means to be in relationship with him. Maybe one of the biggest challenges in the human experience is actually truly believing that God is a good God beyond what any of us can even imagine or ascertain. Lord, give us the heart to know your Father's love in new, fresh ways. The Bible says that he's with us in every step. He's our rear guard. He's our shepherd. He leads us. He's in every step that we take. The the, the steps of a righteous are ordered by God. We got two more verses in the time we have left. I know I took a long time on Romans 8.1, but I saw the look on your faces and you really needed it. Second verse. What, is the, what does the Bible say about shame? The second verse is 1 John 3.20. It says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Whenever um, God asks man a question, it's never for God. God already knows the answer. Whenever God asks man a question, it's for us. We need to hear the answer out loud. So the first question God ever asks humanity is, 
where are you? Where are you? Where are you? The second question he says is, who told you that you're naked? Who told you that you're naked? And I want you to think about that. Who told Adam and Eve that they were naked? Their heart. Their heart did. They rebelled against God. They, they did what they weren't supposed to do, and their heart told them, you're, you're fake. Look at you. You're, 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 you messed up. You're unlovable. You're unforgivable. You blew it. You ruined it. And their heart told them, you better hide, you better avoid, and you better handle this yourself because you messed up. That's what our heart tells us. Can you think about a time where your heart condemned you? The thing that's so powerful about thinking about that time when our heart condemned us is it is 100% true except for the finished work of Jesus. That's why the gospel is such good news. What does the verse tell us in 1 John 3.20? Whenever our hearts condemn us, then what? God is greater. God is greater. You know, sometimes you have to remind your heart that God is greater. When you're feeling all alone, late at night and you messed up again, and you feel like, I can't figure this out. I feel like an idiot. I feel like a fraud. I feel worthless. What does it look like to have a relationship with Jesus? God, uh, I know that you're greater. You're greater than my heart. You're greater than my feelings. You're greater than my pain. You're greater than my struggle. I need you. I can't do this on my own. I've, I've tried. I, can't, I need your help. God, I need you. When someone else shames us, it's one thing. But what we do in our own internal makeup, everything inside of us screams, you're not good enough. You're unlovable. You're unforgivable. What do we do then? The world says, follow your heart. Listen to your heart. Follow your emotions. No thanks. No thanks. That's what got me here. You know where, you know where following your heart will lead you? Isolation, loneliness, despair, brokenness, helplessness. I don't want to follow my heart anymore. Oh, we need a savior. The world says, if your heart tells you something, it must be true. God is greater. God is greater. Translation, what Jesus did on the cross is greater than what your feelings are. It's greater than your past mistakes. It's greater than the shame and the regret that you carry around. Jesus offers us righteousness. We put it on like a coat. We put it on like a, a coat to be in Christ Jesus so it's covered. The shame is covered. God, you're greater. The last verse here, Hebrews 12 two, it says, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus. What you're going to get from me is a message that is Jesus-focused. When you come to church, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. And we do that through looking to his word, through praising and worshiping and lifting his name up high. I don't think you should be heart-focused. I don't think you should be self-focused. I don't think you should be religion-focused or sin-focused. I think you should be Jesus-focused. We are a Jesus church. He has to come first. He has to be the priority. And he gives clarity and perspective to all of these things in our life. And certainly to our past shame that we carry around. Let's break down this verse. What does it mean in this verse when it says despising the shame? 
What does that mean that he despised the shame? It, it quite literally means that Jesus became our sin and our shame. That he looked it in the eyes. Think about this for a second. When you mess up, when a child feels shame, what, where do their eyes go? They drop their head and their eyes go down. You kind of become self-absorbed looking at yourself and your own performance. When Jesus despised the shame on the cross, it means that he took the sin, he took the shame, he stared shame in the eyes and said, I lived a perfect life and you shame will have no hold over my children. That's what Jesus did on the cross. The next part of that verse. You know, when it comes to... um. When it comes to crucifixion, something that I think is so important and worth noting is that Roman citizens could not even be crucified. In ancient Rome, they did crucifixion on the cross. It was only foreigners that were criminals. It was never their own Roman citizens because crucifixion by a cross was the most humiliating, the most shameful, the most despicable way to die. Now, please don't miss this. Please let this sink into your soul. Jesus, the Son of God, came and lived the perfect life and he laid down his life for us. And he could have chosen at his humanity any way that he wanted to die. He chose the cross, the most shameful, the most humiliating, the most despicable way to die because he once and for all wanted to take all of your sin, all of your shame and say, this will have no hold over my children. This will have no hold over my loved ones. I have paid the penalty. Who, who told you that you were naked? Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. It said, who told you you were naked? Okay. God made covering in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? It said there was bloodshed. He killed animals and he took the animal skins and he covered Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden, we see a picture of bloodshed and covering and it points us to the cross where there is bloodshed and there is covering that we can be in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, who told you that you were naked? Okay, I will... I will go naked for you so that once and for all, there will be covering for your sin, for your mistakes, for your shame that so terribly cripples you from living the life that I have designed for my people. The end of that verse is so powerful. It says that he is seated at the right hand of God. That's actually where Jesus is right now. The Holy Spirit is right here with us. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And one of the most boss moves of all of scripture, he sits down. It's the ultimate mic drop of humanity where he says, it is done. That's a wrap. When you allow your shame and your sin and your past regrets to paralyze you, what you are saying is Jesus' work isn't enough because my mistakes are too bad. Jesus is finished work being done literally means what Jesus did is enough. If Jesus needed to do more work, he would do it, wouldn't he? He sat down because his finished work is enough. That shame that you're dealing with, that you're allowing to enter into your life, it is, it is an imposter, it is the enemy, and it is to have no role in your life moving forward. You can lay it down. You can renew your mind. You can walk free of shame by the grace of God. Lift your eyes. Don't you dare put your head down. You are who you are by the grace of God. You know, I want you to think about this for a minute. If, um, man, if, if someone, whether it was a coach or whether it was a teacher or whether it was a retail clerk or whether it was a kid on the street, if someone tried to humiliate and embarrass and shame one of my little girls, my baby boy, 
there would be a physical altercation to stop that from happening. And you know that I'm a lover, not a fighter. They used to say it's on like Donkey Kong. (laughs) Please consider this as we leave. How much more does it deeply provoke your heavenly father's heart when his children feel shame? It so deeply in a holy way moves his heart, which is why he made a way for us to be free of shame. And it's found in Christ Jesus, in a relationship with him, where we're broken, where we're hurting, and we say, Jesus, I can't do this, but I know that you are greater, and I'm putting my faith, 100% of my trust in you. If I told you all of the shameful things that I've done, some of you would be like, I need to find a new church. (laughs) Who among us can stand up and say, I've lived a shame-free life? and lift my head up high. None of us can, but by the grace of God and the finished work of Jesus and his performance, can we stand and say, Jesus, only because of you, by the grace of God, I'm allowed to lift my head. The Bible talks a lot about freedom and it's referring to freedom from this terrible monster that the enemy tries to reap in our lives called shame. We need to stand on the word of God. Don't walk out of, this room, out of this room without knowing to the deep core of your soul how your heavenly father feels about you. Do you need to remind yourself that you're loved, that you're forgiven, that he's got a good plan and purpose for you? Let's pray. Heavenly father, we thank you for these moments together. Lord, we thank you that, um, that in these moments we can remind ourselves who we are and also who we're not. And in the light of the cross and in your grace and in your mercy and your power, your finished work, Jesus, we can know who we truly are, that you don't hold our sins against us, that we are hidden in Christ. And I declare over family church, over everyone under the sound of my voice, that our distinction on planet earth will be one that will be free from shame. And Lord, the source of this freedom, it is not in our own abilities. It is in the finished work of Jesus in a relationship with him. Thank you for confidence and for assurance that comes from a relationship with you. Lord, as many times as it takes this week, in the coming weeks, in the future, Lord, let us renew our minds with the truth of your word, the power and the finished work of Jesus. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're a reminder and that you walk with us each and every day and enable us to live a life of power that brings glory to your name. And if you're here and you're thinking, I, I, I've been, I need the performance of Jesus. I, I don't want to be on my own performance. I need to, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of that impending doom. You don't have to be afraid. You can rest today in the perfect love of Jesus. An invitation to, to pray to God and say, Father, forgive me of my sins. Save me. Fill me with your spirit so I can live for you. Renew my mind with your truth so I can show your love. My life is not my own. I give it to you. Thank you for new life. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.